The reading is from Acts 26, verses 1 through 18. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so often in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the very word of God. We finished uh, our study in First and Second Thessalonians a few weeks ago, and yesterday, or last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we actually began a new sermon series. I don't think I made that very clear, and... Uh, a couple of you have asked, what are we doing now, which I love that question. We're doing a, a, a quick series, which is actually sort of part B of a series we did, our catechesis series for the year on the kingdom of God. And so for the month of April, we're doing some sermons in a series called The King and His Victory. So we began last week with Easter and trying to frame the events around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as an event of victory, a king's victory, a victory of conquest, 
of deliverance, a, a, a global victory. We're trying to understand the kingdom of God and its universal scope, uh, its empire, if you will. We're trying to understand then our faith as Christians from that kind of perspective. So last week we spoke about the resurrection of Jesus as a power, a victorious power, the power of the resurrection. That sort of sets the, the, the theme for us, the tone for all that we're going to see this month as we look at some of these aspects. Today I want to speak and think with you a bit about what it means than to be a Christian in light of the king and his victory. To be a Christian would mean to be counted among God's people in his kingdom. It means to possess the privileges of citizenship. But how exactly do you become a Christian? We know that nobody is technically speaking, born into the Christian faith, you have to become a Christian. You have to be converted to Christianity. Everybody does. But but how exactly does that happen? My aim this morning is to help us think about this a bit more carefully than maybe we are prone to do. And the text that I've turned to is this passage in the book of Acts where we find the Apostle Paul making his own defense before Agrippa. What Paul says here, the way that he makes his argument, gives a lot of insight into what it means to be a Christian and and how it is a person converts to the Christian faith. We find what Christianity is and how we can be one of its proponents. You're with me this morning, aren't you, Clyde? Yeah, I love it. That's great. Okay, now... The process is pretty straightforward. Let's think of it in these ways. There's an old way of living. I'm going to call it the way of religion. And then there's an encounter with Christ, resulting in a new way of living, which I'm calling the way of freedom. So the way of religion the encounter with Jesus, and then the new way, the way of freedom. So let's begin by thinking about what it's like apart from Jesus, the old way, the way of religion. After all, if, if we're going to convert to Christianity, then that means we've all coming from somewhere else, from a, a different religion, if you will. Now, now, what is a religion? I know that word, we use it sometimes, is fraught with difficult uh, associations. But one author defines it as a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about. Who we are and the important things that human beings should spend their time doing. Whatever you think about the world and especially about us as human beings in that world, that is essentially your religion. 
And what transpires in Acts 26 is in essence an intra-Jewish debate. The Apostle Paul defends himself as a Jew to King Agrippa, who is himself quite familiar, verse 3 says, with all the customs and controversies within Judaism. Agrippa, like his father, was thoroughly committed to the Jewish cause as a ruler over the Jewish people in the Roman Empire. And, And though Agrippa ruled only under the authority of Rome itself, there was little doubt about his sincere concerns about the welfare of the Jewish religion. And and what Paul does is he pleads his case to Agrippa, as he says in verse 2, because here is a man who who ought to be amenable to what he is going to say. Here is somebody who ought to be able to identify with what Paul is describing. All of us as human beings are different in many ways, and yet we have so much in common with every other human being on this planet. There's something that we should all understand, something that's intrinsic to our humanity. In this sense, all of us are religious. We all have opinions, strong opinions, about we as humans ought to be doing in the world. So we all start from that basic religious worldview or background. And what Christianity does is it urges us to take this religion seriously. The Apostle Paul begins by saying, my manner of life. And he describes what is a poster-worthy example of what it meant to be a good and faithful Jew. In verse 5, he says, he lived according to the strictest party of our religion, that is, as a Pharisee. Now, Probably when you hear the word Pharisee, you say it with a little bit of a snarl in your nose, right? Like this is a a bad thing, a negative thing. But that's only because you're familiar with Jesus's harsh words against the Pharisees. Yet the Pharisees were among the elite members of Jewish society. They, They were experts in religion, in Judaism. They were the theologians of the Jewish faith. And Paul wants to show that he, when it came to his religion, he was not careless about it. When he says he lived according to the strictest party, this word here, strict, refers to the fact that Paul was precise as a Pharisee. He he took his faith seriously. He paid careful attention to what he believed as a Jew, and he tried to live his life in accordance to those beliefs. You and I don't usually like people who are otherwise called strict, but don't miss the importance of what Paul is saying here. He's saying he's the kind of person who took seriously his religion. He thought carefully about what do I believe and then how should I live my life in light of those beliefs. His religion was not just an accidental aspect of life. It was central to everything that he did. He was all in with his religion. He filtered everything through that prism. It was his worldview and he did his best to live in conformity to it. And if our religion, if our worldview, if how we believe people ought to act in this world has any value at all, then it ought to function just like that, shouldn't it? It should have that kind of effect on everything we think about our lives. And that's why Paul would even say here that your religion is indicated by the way that you worship. 
Again, consider the life of Paul. He says here in verse 7, the most significant detail about his faith as a Jew, what he says he's now on trial for is his hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He says it is for this hope that he was now being accused by the Jews. So Paul wants Agrippa to know that what he found himself accused of by the Jews was believing what it is that Jews say they believe. Paul's defense is to say his problem is not he's being accused of being inconsistent with his worldview, but by being far too consistent. He was on trial by the Jews for actually believing what Judaism confessed. And we know what that hope is according to verse 8. It's the belief that God raises people from the dead. This was Israel's great hope. It was a hope that sustained their worship. He he refers to this in verse 7. Again, notice he says, this is what the 12 tribes hope to attain. The great promise, the great hope of Judaism is the belief that Israel will be raised from the dead. Israel will be reconstituted. Israel's exile would end. They would no longer be dominated by pagan nations. Israel would be liberated, would be set free. There'd be no more exile. There'd be no more death. God himself would reign not only over the nation of Israel, but over all the earth. And every foe, including death, would be reversed, undone, defeated. This is Israel's hope. Israel's God, the good creator that he is, would bring about a new creation. And just like Ezekiel's vision of dry bones once again being animated by flesh and breath, every Jew knew this was a promise yet to be fulfilled. This was not yet done. The problem is that this was such a fantastic promise that for many Jews, they thought it best to reinterpret their promise rather than to hold out for its fulfillment. Perhaps it just means that even in the midst of suffering and death, God will subjectively reveal himself, give us some sense of good life in the midst of difficulty. The religion and rituals, the worship of Judaism, were there just to give a sense of the esoteric and the divine. It would, be, it would be a useful habit, perhaps, to engage in these kinds of worship and customs just to help get through the difficulties of life on planet Earth and hopefully a blessed life thereafter. And Paul is simply saying that's how many people live their religious life. They, they live with empty rituals of worship, not really believing in what those rituals are pointing us to. But Paul says, this is the old way of religion until you come face to face with the resurrected Christ. Now, Paul's story of what happened to him on the road to, Amas- to Damascus is, of course, a unique story. But everyone who becomes a Christian has this in common with Paul. They have an encounter with Christ. Something that transforms that old religion, empty rituals that don't actually 
lead us to any real promise of real fulfillment, it changes everything. That is, their manner of life collides with the claims of Jesus and something has to give. The claims of Christianity, the claims of the resurrected Christ come up against every single religious belief. And it has to be one or the other. So verses 9 to 11, Paul recounts that during his old way of life, he was greatly opposed to Jesus. He says, in fact, he was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He did everything that he could to discourage the Christian movement from advancing. He persecuted Christians. He tried to get them to blaspheme, to repudiate their allegiance to Jesus. Now notice, Paul did not do this because he was some evil madman. He did this because of his old religion. As a careful Jew, he saw Christianity not as something that could be tolerated, but something that had to be opposed. Why? Because Christianity was a threat to everything that he believed. The Christian movement could not be allowed to have its own private following. Christianity, if it was true, was explosive and dangerous. He saw it to be a deadly disease attacking the vitals of Jewish hope and life. Now, again, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why was Christianity such a threat to Paul's understanding of Judaism? Why is Christianity even to this day considered such a threat to many of the empires of the world? And it all has to do with resurrection. It all has to do with resurrection. The claim that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and that he had now been raised from the dead was an explosive view to hold. Because if it's true, then everything has to change. Everything has to. You can't just keep living the way you lived before if indeed Jesus has been raised. Paul knew this. He understood this so much so that he saw Christianity cannot be an insignificant thing. If it's true that Jesus has been raised from the dead, Paul knew Jesus has to be worshipped as the true sovereign of the world. Everything that he had hoped for had to now be realized only in and through Jesus. Everything. So Paul understood That the claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead was an absolute watershed issue. Either Jesus had to be opposed or he had to be worshipped. It was one or the other. There could be no middle ground about Jesus given the claim that was being made about him. There couldn't be a middle ground. Now, for those of us who've been raised within the Christian faith, the weight of what Paul felt from the claim about Christ probably isn't just all that heavy. Nevertheless, everyone who is truly a Christian has far more in common with Paul and his experience on the road to Damascus than at first you might have thought. I know Paul's story is dramatic. You read about it in verse 13. He says at midday he saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. He heard a voice speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that metaphor, of course, refers to the long branch of wood with a pointed spike on one end that would be used to prod the oxen to plow. But what it means is that Paul could not go on resisting a power that was impelling him to go in a completely opposite direction. It wasn't that Paul did not believe Jesus existed. He believed it well enough. So much so he had to oppose everything about Jesus. And we probably should not make too much of the dramatic aspect of the story as if it was the experience in and of itself that was the new driving force in his life. Paul doesn't actually spend much time dwelling on the encounter, the experience itself, which is, in fact, a little bit difficult to understand. It's told three times in the book of Acts, and scholars debate how much of it is a subjective vision, experience, how much of it was an objective reality. So there's all kinds of debate about that, but I want you to see what Paul saw as the point of contact with all of us, all of us who must share with Paul's experience, and that is the claim that Jesus is alive, embodied alive, immortal. If it's true, then everything in our lives now has to be transformed by that reality. You can't resist the goad anymore, in other words. If you are walking in one direction, your old way, the old way of religion, and you encounter the resurrected Christ, then you have to go in a different direction, an entirely different way. Now, let us not assume that we know instinctively what that way is. This is where things get so convoluted. You, you talk to people assumptions about what it means to live like a Christian or to be a Christian, the Christian way of living. <laughs> None of us are natural Christians, so all of us have to have this kind of an encounter in our lives transformed by the resurrected power of Christ. The Christian life is not a mere code of conduct. And, and that's why it's never enough simply to ask a question like, what would Jesus do, right? As if every moment of our life is a new set of rules that we have to live by, patterned after the behavior of Jesus. Being a Christian is so much more than that. It means living by a new power that, yes, takes us down a different path. But what is that path? What should we call that path? It's not some kind of new moral code of conduct. A narrow road? Okay, that's a good one. I'm going to call it this. Can we do this? I'm going to call it a way of freedom, a way of liberation. And here's why I call it that. I call it that because what happens next in Paul's story, again, so much of his Damascus Road experience is focused on the vision the, the words of Jesus, what was that like? But I want you to notice what Jesus says next and what happens to Paul. 
Paul's story is something of a parallel to an Old Testament story. The closest parallel to what happens to Paul on the Damascus Road is what happens to Moses at the burning bush. The similarities are striking. They're not altogether the same. But just recall a couple things. God calls out to Moses, Moses, Moses. And here we find the voice calling out, Saul, Saul. The cry from heaven for Moses came from the I am, the sovereign Lord. And what Yahweh calls Moses to do is not altogether different from what Jesus now tells Paul to do. Look what he says. He is now called to announce the fulfillment of the long-awaited promise and to rescue God's people, bringing them into that fulfillment. Just as Moses is being sent now to Israel to bring them out of exile in the Exodus into relationship with God, so Paul is now being sent to do the same thing. In fact, Jesus tells Paul that he has appeared to him for this purpose. And look at verse 18. I just want to focus on verse 18 as we conclude this morning. In verse 18, Jesus says this, I have sent you to open their eyes, to open their eyes. The Christian life, based on the confidence that Jesus has risen from the dead, is like having a new lens by which you see everything differently. Several years ago, I had LASIK surgery. Those of you who've gone through something like that, it is like the closest thing to a miracle I've ever experienced. Wow. I mean, to go from complete blindness without glasses to being able to see, amazing. I mean, amazing. And if you encounter the resurrected Christ, life just can't be the same. Nothing could be the same. It's a completely new lens by which you see everything. What is this lens that Christians have by which they see everything? What is this path they now walk? And I'm saying to you, Christian, it is the lens of the resurrection. That's how we see the world now. We understand spiritual realities. And when I say spiritual, when the Bible says spiritual realities, we are way too platonic in our thinking. We start thinking spiritual means immaterial and nothing could be more non-Christian. Spiritual means eternal, immortal. It means death is eradicated, but we are embodied, new creation, tangible things. Not non-physical things, but immortal things. With that kind of lens, that is the lens of resurrection, that we as Christians are aiming for, not merely heaven, not merely some disembodied life after we die, but we are aiming for immortal bodies resurrection of the body. With that kind of lens, here's what Jesus says again in verse 18. 
Christians with those kinds of eyes open turn from darkness to light. That is, from the power of Satan to God. Did you see the connection here? The hope of resurrection, now inaugurated in the person of Jesus, means that Satan has been stripped of his power. The great power of the enemy is the power of death. But Satan has now been disarmed. Like the Pharaoh of Egypt, Christians now are leaving the power of Satan, who has no real power over us anymore. So, to be practical, you can do it two ways. First, death has no power, so don't make too much of life. As if this life, this mortal life, (laughs) is all that you have. For Christians, nothing could be more unbelieving than a bucket list. This mortal life is not all you have. We are heading for immortal resurrected bodies. You can't miss out. You've got eternity to live embodied. So don't make too much of this mortal life as if your time is running out and you'll never experience mortal or embodied life ever again. That's not Christian. We are heading for resurrection. However, because death has no power, don't make too little of this life. As if the only hope we have is to die and escape from it, and that everything in this life is meaningless. No, nothing could be more unchristian than that. Because we believe in the resurrection of the body, there is continuity in the immortal life to come with the life that you have right now, seating right here in these seats. Turn from the power of Satan and death as the final enemy to the power of God and the hope that we have in resurrection. But then the resurrected power of Christ also means, Jesus says here, that we have been given this new path of freedom with eyes open to spiritual realities, leaving out of Egypt. Death has no power. Satan has no power. He's a defeated Pharaoh. And into what Jesus calls the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. What does that mean? Well, forgiveness of sins. What what more freedom could you have? The Apostle John writes, 1 John, he says, so that you may not sin. It shouldn't come as any surprise. Christians, we, we try not to sin. Like, that's a good thing, right? But listen to what John says. He says, I've written to you so that you may not sin, but, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Freedom. What incredible freedom. The Christian life isn't lived as if we're in fear of God trying to live up to some new moral code so he doesn't crush us. No. If you do sin, you have an advocate. You have a friend 
who has paid for every sin, every failure, every way you fall short of his glory is answered in the blood of Jesus. That's freedom. That's the freedom of the Christian life. But more than that, he says, sanctified, a place among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. There, Jesus is not merely about the business of forgiving our debts and getting us back to zero. Is that how you live the Christian life? Every day, just living only in the reality of the forgiveness of sins. Thank you. Thank you. There's no, thank you. There's no consequences. Thank you. There's no judgment. Thank you. There's no condemnation. What glorious truth that is. But many Christians stay there. They live their lives there as if all that the Christian life is, is I sin, God forgives. I sin, God forgives. Jesus says there's more freedom than that. More freedom. A place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. He's not just getting us back to zero, getting us nowhere. He's sanctifying us completely, making us holy through faith in Christ. We are the kinds of people on a path heading for the freedom, the glory of immortal existence. So Paul stands on trial. And yet he knows that his coming to Christ and the new way of living as a Christian is a great benefit to him. But according to verse 16, his whole conversion was not just for him. Jesus says, arise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul is now sent out, commissioned to bear good news of what has happened to him. Sure, yes, but ultimately of what God has now granted to all who will come to Jesus. And so we implore you, come to Christ. Come to the resurrected Jesus. In him, there's new life. In him, there's a new way, a way of freedom. Let's pray together.